0: Next up is the news. The news. The news. Keep the news. News. (laughs) News.
1: News. News. You'll be greeted with nothing but sadness and disappointment.
2: (laughs) Welcome back to the Maroon Weekly. It is week four of spring quarter and this is episode 12. As always, I'm Austin and in the studio today is Miles.
1: What's up? And Hey everyone. In this episode, we'll cover the university's past attempts to build a megadorm, the new developments with the proposed business major, news, and events on campus.
0: So, Austin, you're going to take our first interview. What did you cover this week?
2: So, I actually got to sit down with Spencer Demner, Maroon reporter and frequent guest on the pod, to talk about his recent piece on the history of the university's plans for college dorms and, more specifically, the history of mega dorms in the college. <laughs> So I'm sitting down here with Spencer Demner. How are you doing, Spencer? Pretty well. How about you? I'm doing all right. So you recently wrote a piece on the rune about the history of megadorms at the college. Yes. Let's just get right into it. So give me kind of the gist of like what your goal was with the piece.
3: So the original question was, could we say anything interesting about sort of directions the college didn't take, you know, big ambitious plans that we used to have but that we never actually got around to following through with or like how how differently could the campus look if we had built all of those things. And it turns out that one of the areas where the most amount of that sort of thing has happened is housing. You know, for most of the university's history it hasn't had very much housing. We talk about in the article right now we're at something like 60 percent, which is low compared to some colleges, and when the college was founded it was more like 20 percent. You had a ton of people commuting. Uh, You had a ton of people living either in the neighborhood or often in fraternity houses. Um, And so the university, for a long time, there've been people wondering, you know, should we build a lot more housing and maybe we should build a lot more housing in one place at one time. Um, And so that's where you get all these kind of ambitious plans that didn't go anywhere.
2: Well, let's dive into the very beginning of the college then. So as you just touched on there, the beginning of the college was, it was a commuter campus mainly, right? It was just mainly for people living in Chicago and then a ton of frat fraternities on campus. In
3: large part, yeah. It, it, that was not as much by design. Like, no one said Chicago should be a commuter campus. It's just sort of the way things ended up happening. It's like a lot of the students that Chicago is drawing ended up being students from the city of Chicago. And the other interesting thing we found out, I, I should say, by the way, that most of what I'm talking about here and in the article, it's research that Dean Boyer did um, that kind of got to the bottom of a lot of this. But what's interesting about the commuter thing is that it actually grew for most of the first 40 or 50 years of the college's uh, tenure. Like the the number of people who were commuting was actually far higher in like 1940 or 1950 than it was in 1890. Uh, And one thing they suggested was that that's because the Chicago transit system got better and so people could commute from further away. Uh, But also it just was not an institutional priority for most of the college's history. To, to get people on campus the way that it is a priority now.
2: So I think it's really yeah. interesting because it wasn't, well, from the period from the beginning of the college to 1940, it wasn't like there wasn't any debate among like, adding more housing to the campus. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of tension between graduate and the undergraduate sides of campus. So I think in 1928, 1930-ish was like the first big push for undergraduate housing. Could you go into that?
3: Absolutely, yeah. So what happened was there was a, a former president of the university, Ernest Burden, um, of Burden Judson, uh, who, who had the idea that the university should become more residential and kind of think in a more serious way about how to structure its undergraduate curriculum. There's this weird confluence of interest, actually, because there are a lot of people who were worried that the college was going to end up prioritizing undergraduates too much um, and sort of getting away from what they saw as its, quote, real purpose and you know in terms of educating graduate students. And a lot of them actually liked Burden's plan initially because— What Burden would do was basically shunt people off to do undergraduate-only education for a couple years and keep them out of the hair of the graduate students. And then once they had gotten through all that, then they would sort of come back and start taking more specialized classes. Part of that was building a dorm. Uh, Burden died before he could make any serious progress on that. But uh, Frederick Woodward, who was interim president for a while and sort of temporarily succeeded him, was the one who really tried to get this off the ground. And he hired an architect, and he started making plans for it. And it was going to be this kind of enormous complex right where BJ and the law school and South and everything are right now.
2: So what did that kind of look like? Like, lay it out for me.
3: So we have a photo of it in the article, but just think BJ, but several times larger. The, wow. the original plan that the architect was imagining um, involved a library, you know, tons of classroom space, and sort of this enormous gothic mixed-use village. Uh, That got scaled down almost immediately to just, we basically want a lot of dorms. Um, But it was going to be like 1,600 people. You know, it would have been the single largest dorm on campus, and it would have stretched from basically Ellis to Woodlawn and a block south of there. Um, And so imagine something that looks a little bit like BJ, but on kind of a much more ambitious scale.
2: And the goal, so was... To kind of keep college separated from the graduate divisions by housing them across the street.
3: That was some people's goals. Okay. Um, that that's that's kind of the weird thing. Like some people thought of this as like we need to take undergraduate education more seriously, and some oh. people thought of it as we need to get undergraduates out of the way. Um, and ironically, that's also part of what killed the project. Is there were there were some faculty members who were worried that the college was becoming too undergraduate focused. Um, and, you know, all of this sports and all of these fraternities, and that they were just going to be overwhelmed by sort of the student life aspect of undergraduates and not do any serious research anymore. So w- William Dodd um, was one of the leaders of that, uh, as in Dodd Mead. A lot of these people have things named after them now. Um, mm-hmm. And, and he, he was talking a lot about that kind of worry, and he, he ended up sort of torpedoing that proposal.
2: I think there's a funny quote from Dodd in your piece where he, like, says, like, let them go to Harvard and Yale and... Uh, that we only take serious students like graduates, not undergraduates, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a great one. <laughs> Good way to put the sentiment. Okay, so <laughs> moving past the 1930s. So after that, I think the push to get housing on campus died down, as he said, and the college became more and more commuter, right? More or less, commuter,
3: yeah. What, what's what's partially interesting about this is that it's sort of Robert Maynard Hutchins' fault. You know, he's understood as being this pioneer in undergraduate education, which of course he is. But what what Bora points out in his report is that that didn't include, you know, any kind of seriousness okay. about the idea that the university has a job in giving them, like, an undergraduate residential community. He sort of didn't see that as his problem. Um, (laughs) And so the university didn't either. And, you know, under his tenure, there was very little expansion of housing. Um, What happened both before and after the next project, which I'm sure we'll talk about, is that the university would just sort of buy things. And so they would house people in, like, hotels that they had bought and, like, random buildings. And that's part of how they acquire all these massive holdings in the community is that whenever some building was about to be torn down or something the university would buy it and turn it into a dorm because they were kind of perennially short of housing even though everybody lived off campus.
2: Wow well and so going into the next story you just touched on the Blum plan right? Yes. Uh, What does that look like what exactly when did it start why did it start up?
3: So the Bloom Plan is a reaction to a couple of things. Uh, the first of which is this kind of failed push to make the college more residential. Um, in 1960, there was this idea that the college should just force almost everyone to live on campus. And so there was a rule instituted that said, men live on campus for two years, women live on campus for four years. Um, the, the problem is that the dorms sucked. Um, <laughs> and and so people were living in places like Woodward Court or you know Pierce Tower, which of course became legendary for that. Um, and even the people who had proposed this plan would go and, like, visit people in these dorms and be like, this is not fit for human habitation. Like, the the plan was torpedoed because basically no one thought that the college's undergraduate housing was good enough to force people to live there, and so they ended up making all these exceptions and then basically rescinded the rule in, like, 1963, 1964. Um, That led to sort of a broader discussion about, like, how can we get serious about housing? You know, if we want to be residential, we have to build housing that's good. Um, and, And so they were talking about building what they called the North Quadrangle, which was going to be this big university village-type complex, not quite as ambitious as the one that we were just talking about, but it was going to house around 900 students and have shopping and all these things. And the site was going to be right around where the current Stag Field is, actually. Oh, wow. Um, so that that was sort of the second big push for more ambitious housing.
2: And why did that sort of not come to fruition? A couple factors. One of them is the
3: rig. Um, the university was was sort of in a building push in other areas beyond housing. And, and that was very expensive, and the university was very short on money, as, as it often was. Um, and ultimately, they prioritized building the library, which was completed in 1970, I think, around a similar period of time, over building this dorm complex. The, the other thing is that um, there was an incident that we have written about at one point in the past where there was this gigantic sit-in at Levi Hall, and, like, f- dozens of students were expelled as a result of it. It was sort of this 60s counterculture-type incident. Um, And apparently the admissions office was told to just not take as many students the next year because I guess they were concerned that that the campus was getting out of control. Um, And so some of the urgency went away because the incoming class was like a third smaller than the previous one, and there was just not as much of a shortage of housing anymore. And so it got put on the back burner and then just sort of shelved entirely.
2: After that fizzled off and died then— how did we get to the present day? Because if we look, since Dean Boyer has become dean of the college, like there's been a lot of megadorm projects.
3: Yeah. Um, I think that that story—so so for most of the time after the North Quadrangle Plan failed, there was sort of a similar strategy oriented around just buying buildings. And that's where a lot of these satellite dorms come from, is acquisitions the university made like either before or after this plan. Um, but the university didn't build anything for, like, 40 years until Max wow. Pilevsky. Their, their last construction before Max Pilevsky was Pierce Tower in 1960. W- what happened, I think, is a similar thing that happened in, like, other areas of the college. Um, you know, 2000 is also around the time when the university revised its core somewhat, made it a little bit less, less onerous. And so I think you can see some degree of kind of more active thinking about the undergraduate college Uh, and more interest in kind of making the undergraduate college be an attractive place to prospective students and kind of top-level administrative focus on that. You know, and Dean Boyer specifically has always said that one of his top priorities is sort of expanding housing, and he's been citing the number for a long time of trying to have capacity for at least 70% of students. Um, And so that's where you get things like Max Pilevsky in 2000 and uh, South Campus, which I believe opened in 2008, 2009, um it's, it's all part of this kind of broader push where the college wants to, there, there's more kind of top level administrative interest in investing in the college and specifically in investing in sort of the idea that the college should be residential and that it's, I guess, part of competitiveness for the college to, to house a lot of its students on
2: campus. So I think it's really interesting that, I mean, throughout the history of the college, we've seen this ebb and flow, the pushback between trying to focus on the college, not trying to focus on the college. But mm-hmm. it seems like... Finally, a focus on the college seems to have won over, right? Like we've seen a prolonged period of building mega dorms, and the university's been focusing on the college now for a while. do you think um, do you think it seems kind of like under Gene Boyer that the university's finally realized the importance of having a strong undergraduate college?
3: seems like it yeah, I mean to to be to be fair to you know the people who were opposed to this, like we said with Hutchins, a lot of them actually were very serious about the college. they just weren't very serious about kind of the idea that it's u chicago's job to get you housing um i think what what may have changed to some extent that there's it it certainly seems like u chicago is trying to compete in a way that it wasn't um, in terms of undergraduate experience and part of that is like it sees the fact that its rivals are residential and it wants to be residential um but i I do think you have to like we built a lot of housing there's like over two thousand beds already in north south and max p and you know there's there's another dorm with 1200 more along the way So maybe maybe part of what what we we can say is that the university has not planned any more kind of sixteen hundred person projects, but they are building these kind of pretty large projects, and they're building a lot of them. Um, And it seems like maybe the piecewise approach has has faced a bit less opposition, been a bit more successful than the whole you know we're going to turn two city blocks into a megadorm, and you know hopefully that won't face any opposition from faculty. It seems like that maybe has been a bit more successful.
2: Awesome. Well, it was a great piece. Uh, thanks for sitting down to talk to us about it. Do you have any last thoughts you'd like to share with anybody?
3: Um, no, I think, I think that mostly covers it. I think there's just a lot of really interesting history here, and I hope people get the chance to read more about it. If you're curious for more details, you really should read uh, Dean Boyer's piece as well, which goes into some more kind of details
2: on what happened. Awesome. Well, thanks for sitting down to talk to me. Absolutely. Thank you. Have you ever wanted your very own pair of Snapchat spectacles?
0: Now you can get them on the Maroon's Marketplace.
2: What is Marketplace, you might ask?
0: Marketplace is a classifieds page. It used to be run by student government, and now the Maroon has taken it over, and it serves university students and other people around Hyde Park.
2: You can find everything from apartment sublets to random shoes, backpacks, school supplies, books, anything and everything. Check it out at com. Yeah, and
0: if you go on and enter the code... Maroon Weekly, you will get nothing.
1: (laughs) Next up, we've got a segment from Quinn. Who did you get a chance to talk to this week?
0: So this week, I talked to Katie Aiken again. Uh, Past times when we've talked, we covered the rumors about the the initial rumors about the business major. This time, there's been some new developments around the business major, so we're going to get into... How the previous proposal has now changed. Hey Katie, thanks for coming back on the pod.
4: Sure, anytime. I love the maroon.
0: So last time we talked about the business economics major. That was that was a while ago. It was a couple um, weeks, yeah. <laughs> so can you remind me where the business major was at that point and how the proposal first started?
4: Yes, definitely. So in January, uh we heard that the economics department was going to propose a business major, a business economics major technically, um, to the college council which is a group of 40 faculty members who vote on changes to the curricula in the college. So they had proposed this major and they were going to vote on it in their February meeting. Uh, So I think when we last talked it was right after that February meeting.
0: Right and they had delayed that meeting right?
4: Yes or well they had the meeting and then they decided to delay the vote. I think it was like a 16-14 1614 or 1612 split to, to delay the vote to their April meeting uh, because they didn't have one in March. So the idea, as I understood it, after their February meeting was that they were all going to, you know, think about it some more and maybe like release some more information to the public um, and then decide accordingly uh, on, I think, April 10th. I'll check the date. But sometime in April, they were going to have another meeting and vote.
0: And so that business major was its own major right it Mm -hmm. was that's why it needed approval from the college council because it was an entirely new major
4: yes exactly so it was going to be a little similar to the current economics major but uh there was going to be a lot more involvement with booth uh, and they wanted to make it a separate you know major that you could declare uh so just like everything else you know you could be like a linguistics major an econ major you could also be a business economics major was the the vision originally
0: so now what's changed with this proposal
4: Right. So I emailed Professor John List, uh, who's the chairman of the Department of Economics, last week. And I said, hey, this is going to a vote soon. Like, what's the deal? And he said, oh, I've actually withdrawn the proposal to um, to make a new major. So for, for a second, everyone was like, oh, great, I guess it's just not happening. And then the day after or two days after he emailed me, he announced to his entire Economics for Everyone class that the major would be happening. So after a few days of confusion, we figured out that it won't be its own separate major. Uh, so it's been withdrawn from the college council. It's no longer under consideration as like, you know, a discrete entity, but instead it's, it's going to be a track within the economics major, pending approval within the department.
0: And so does that mean that this new business track will look different than the business major that was originally proposed?
4: so that sort of remains to be seen i'm sure there will be some slight differences we don't actually have a copy of the plan for the track yet we're working on getting more information on like what exactly that will look like we did manage to get uh his original proposal for the like major itself so right now i'm under the assumption that it will be similar to the original proposal but maybe a bit more closely tied to the current econ major than it would have been otherwise.
0: Do we know any sort of specifics about this new track at all?
4: Not really. To tell you the truth, I went in to interview List, (laughs) and I've been trying to track him down for days after he had announced this to his entire lecture class. Um, And so I knock on his office door, and to my surprise, someone opens the door, but it's a professor who isn't John List, and he like beckons me in, and I'm like, oh god. (laughs) And so I go into Professor List's office, and there's this whole documentary crew surrounding him, and so I'm just standing there like, oh, I'm so sorry, I could leave. And he's like, no, come on in, you have five minutes. And I was like, what the hell is happening? Uh, but anyway, so I, I only had a very brief window to speak with him. So I know it's a track. I know it's very likely that it will pass within the department, although I don't think they've actually voted on it yet. But unfortunately, I didn't have enough time to really get into the nitty gritty of the coursework.
0: That's bizarre it was so
4: strange and the, the weirdest part is that the documentary crew right after one of them was like oh you have to sign this like form and i was like what is this and he was like it just says that it's legal for you to like appear in our documentary and i'm like i'm in the documentary you're gonna be in a
0: movie now i guess so i don't know
4: what documentary it is but it was just it was definitely one of the stranger interviews i've wow. had on this campus that's
0: crazy congrats on your first I'm assuming My first your movie first movie appearance yeah, yeah. <laughs> on the silver screen yeah thanks uh, so yeah this major no longer needs to be approved by the College Council. Now it's just an mm-hmm. internal sort of approval in the economics department.
4: Yep. Yeah. Um, so I am not exactly sure who needs to uh, approve it, but it seems to me that uh, John List said that everyone was pretty pretty optimistic about the chances of it passing. So he's hoping to actually have this major, or sorry, this track be available starting next fall.
0: Last time we talked, we talked about how there were some response on campus to the proposal of the business major, particularly, you know, that people thought that this sort of major was too pre-professional for UChicago. But sort of another thing that I've seen is people saying that this major would be somehow easier than a regular econ major. What, if anything, have you seen about that?
4: Yeah, so I haven't really seen too much uh, response just in the last week to the track, but I do know that... Throughout this whole process, and uh, even when I last interviewed him, John List is insistent on maintaining what he calls the Chicago way. Uh, he uses that phrase a lot. He's like, "It's going to be very rigorous. It's still going to be very intense. It's the Chicago way." But I think it is true that in in this proposal for a business economics major, the idea is to make it like lighter on math and heavier on like, you know, application. Uh, in the original proposal, there's a line that says something like you know, not every student is Ada Lovelace. And then in his interview with me, John List said something along the lines of like, you know, students come here for four years and they're absolutely killing themselves the whole time. Like we might as well give them what they want. So I don't know if it's gonna be like easier or like, you know, less intense, but I do think there's a good chance it will be less like theoretical math heavy than the current economics like track. Um, So if people think that that is, easier, quote-unquote, then perhaps there's something to say there.
0: Interesting. Yes. So from here, is it just as long as it gets approved in the economics department, it'll start being offered in the fall?
4: Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm hoping to to keep pretty, <laughs> pretty close track of it um, and Ideally, we'll have more information on exactly what it's going to look like, but I think that the timeline is that the economics department is going to approve it, and people will start hearing more about it as a potential a potential track soon, I assume.
0: Great. Well, we'll keep our, our <laughs> ears or eyes open. All of them. Yeah. yeah.
4: <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for talking with me.
4: Yes, of course. Anytime. Go podcasts. <laughs>
0: Thanks again to Katie Aiken for talking to me about the business major. So this week we've had a lot of pods coming out, and all of them have been really interesting. The Artscast last week aired an interview with Black Sam, the rapper formerly known as Chief Wicked. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The artist formerly known (laughs) as Prince slash Chief Wicked. He talked with Artscast reporter Mimansa about his history of rapping on campus and where he sees his career going in the future.
1: We also have an episode this week of the Quadcast in which Aiden Million interviewed the leader of the Black Business Alliance, which is an RSO on campus. So be sure to check out both of those in addition to all of the great content from the weekly last week.
2: Moving on to the news.
1: About a month ago, the Maroon broke the news that the Pearson family was suing the university over donations intended to found the Pearson Institute. If you're not familiar with that story, you can go back and listen to our coverage of it or read the article on the Chicago Maroons' website. So the update we have for you is that the university has countersued and says that it's in full compliance with its grant agreement.
2: In other news, Kenneth Griffin, the namesake of the Egon Department, donated $10 million to support the ongoing collaboration between CPD and the U Chicago Crime Labs. Since February 2017, the Crime Lab has been in charge of the City's Strategic Decision Support Centers, which have been scattered around the south side and west sides of the city. They use data analytics for predictive policing methods. If you want to hear more about that, check out next week's episode of the Maroon Weekly, where I'll be sitting down with some members of the Crime Lab to discuss the role with the UCPD, CPD, and discussing Strategic Decision Support Centers across the city. This
0: Friday, the Obama Foundation released a list of recent donations, for the first time including the University of Chicago. How much did they end up giving to the foundation? The university donated somewhere between $100,000 and, $1 and $250,000. However, the the actual number is no more than $200,000
1: according to the Tribune's reporting. Valerie Jarrett, noted Chicagoan and senior advisor to President Obama from 2009 to 2016, was selected as the class day speaker for the class of 2018. This past Thursday, Fourth year in the college,
0: Harry Kiyoko competed on Jeopardy in the college championship.
2: How did he do? Did he make the college proud?
0: Well, he did his best. He got $400.
2: 400 is a lot of money.
0: He did not advance to the next round. That's a bummer. If you want to hear from Harry and another university student who has competed on Jeopardy, listen to the Maroon Weekly's special report from last week, Double Jeopardy where Lucia Gang, Maroon reporter, speaks with Harry about how he got onto Jeopardy, what it was like preparing, and what it was like behind the scenes.
1: Next up, we've got a bunch of great events coming up this week. Former Secretary of State for the Clinton administration, Madeleine Albright, will be speaking at iHouse house 5 p.m. on April 16th.
0: So this week, there's a couple things happening around campus in the arts world. University Theatre and TAPS are now presenting New Work Week, where... Fourth years, who are graduating from the TAPS department, will showcase their BA projects and performances. And tonight, Monday the 16th, Fire Escape will be screening its films created during the 48-Hour Film Fest, where teams of participants create several films over the span of 48 hours. You can see that screening at Doc Films. And if you're interested, check out the ArtsCast next week, where a new reporter, Matt Robinson, will cover what it's like to be in that festival.
2: Finally... Saturday, April 21st at 8 p.m., the University Symphony Orchestra will be hosting its Concerto Showcase.
1: Austin, let's get technical.
2: I'm sure many of you saw last week news surrounding Mark Zuckerberg's testimony before Congress. However, I wanted to talk specifically about something called shadow profiles, which wasn't highlighted that much during the testimony.
0: What are shadow profiles?
2: What a shadow profile is, is it's data that Facebook keeps on you even if you don't have a Facebook profile. It's made up of data from three specific sources. First off is data that Facebook calls growth. So essentially, when one of your friends uploads their contacts to Facebook, Facebook will track your phone number as well as your contact name. And if multiple friends of yours upload their contacts to Facebook, they can track who you're friends with on Facebook and begin to generate a profile for you based off your phone number, your friends that have also uploaded your contact. The second part is whenever you visit a Facebook page, they track your IP address. So you don't even have to be signed into a Facebook account. You don't have to have a Facebook account but they're gonna track your IP address and track what Facebook pages you visit. Now, Facebook says it's for safety reasons because they don't want someone to maliciously scrape data off every Facebook page on Facebook. However, in reality, it just is another way for them to track your IP and they can see what other Facebook pages you visit. Finally, the third source that Facebook pulls data from for shadow profiles is through Facebook Pixel, which is just a standard advertising uh, web tracker. So like Google has this for Google ads, Um, website owners can just embed the software in their website and it'll track all the pages you visit and allows them to target ads.
0: Right, and how could you even give them permission to track your data if you're not on Facebook?
2: Well, so that's the key thing. Um, The problem with shadow profiles is that you you have no control over the data. When Zuckerberg was questioned about this during his testimony, he emphasized the fact that you can delete all of your Facebook data at any time and you can opt out of web tracking. However, that's only possible if you have a Facebook account. If you don't have a Facebook account, you have no way of understanding what shadow data Facebook has on you, and you have no jurisdiction over this shadow data.
0: That has been our weekly Tech Fact.
1: Thank you for listening to the Maroon Weekly. This has been episode 12 for the fourth week of spring quarter. we got a couple of thank yous.
2: First off, thank you to Spencer Demner for sitting down to talk to me about the history of housing at the university.
1: And thank you to Katie
0: Aiken for talking to me once again about the business major. Thank you to Ben, Kent, and the entire Logan Cage staff for the help with our audio equipment.
1: And the Podspiration, Catherine, Catherine McDonald. McDonald. That's been our episode. We'll catch you next week on Monday.